Heavenly Father, thank you for this word that you've preserved through the ages. Thank you for Mark in recording it. Thank you for Mark for reading it here today. We pray, Heavenly Father, that you might open our ears, unstop our hearts, soften us, Father, so that by your Holy Spirit you might change and grow us through this time. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's, uh, let's think a little bit about, uh, about how we start this morning, how we come uh, to this time together. And I want to ask, how do you come to Jesus this morning? How do you come to Jesus this morning? What, what level of faith, what, what's your expectation? What do you know about him? I want to think a little bit about how we come to Jesus this morning. So I want to think, uh, how much do you, two things up here, how much do you know about him? So for some of you, you'll think, I know a little bit about him. For some of you, you'll be sitting here and you're saying, oh, actually, I've, I've been in church all my life. I know heaps of stuff about Jesus. In fact, you know, if they needed a fifth gospel, I'm ready to kind of start pinning, okay? So some of you will know lots, some of you know very little. So know about him. There's another question though, isn't there? How much do you know him? Different question, isn't it? Are we the people, some of us will be the people who are sort of giving a friendly wave to Jesus. Hey Jesus, I see you out there somewhere. Greetings. Some of us, in contrast to that, won't be at the friendly wave, the, what I call in Oran Park, the bin wave. Do, do you know the bin wave? Uh, this is how you get to know your neighbours. You know, you really know your neighbourhood. Because on bin night, when you put your bins out, you're able to have that wave. Do, do, do you know what I'm talking about? There's, there's no other words, but there's the bin wave. I think some, some of us are up to bin wave with Jesus. And we're like, yep, yeah, I, I see you. Some of us have done something quite different. We've invited him into our lives. And so we would say, actually, how do we know Jesus? We know him intimately. We know him as the one we put our faith and hope and trust in. We know him at a personal core level. He's a person we're familiar with. Not only does he know me, but I know him. And so they're quite different ways to come, aren't there? And some of us, amazingly, might not know very much about him, but have made that decision to put our trust in him. And conversely, some of us may know stacks about Jesus, but we might be at bin-waving level still. This morning, I want to challenge us. If you don't have very much knowledge, to grow it. If you have a mere waving acquaintance, that you might step closer in relationship. What is it this morning that might stop us I think for some of us, the ones who really put their hand in Jesus' hand, who started to walk their life with him, it's because we've come to a point of surrender. We've come to a point of surrender. Uh, this picture up here, a uh, German tank in the, in the desert uh, around Egypt. Uh, if you're in a tank, you think you're pretty much unbeatable, aren't you? The only reason you get out of the tank is to have dinner or to surrender. And someone who's a German coming out of a tank to someone who's an allied person there at that point uh, has decided that their previous strength is lost. They have nothing to offer. Their retreat is over. All they can do is raise their hands and plead for mercy. Some of us are at the surrender point. We've recognised that when it comes to God, we can't demand. We're not in charge. We must surrender. In contrast, 
Some of us are at the spectator level, and that, that's what I was talking about before. We're happy to watch the Jesus story unfold. Maybe we're even happy to watch church unfold around us. We, we come along, and it swells around, and we know now where to get tea and coffee. And we've put up with the fact that someone's put a sticker on us with our name on it when we already knew our name. We, we're a spectator, though, still, to Jesus. And I want to think, why would we stay a spectator this morning? Why would we stay spectators? I think you can stay a spectator when you've got things you can still rely on. When you're able to say, no, I'll get through because I'm relying on. And some of those things might be, I'm relying on friends and family. So I don't need to surrender to Jesus. I can incorporate him into the mix, but my strength, when it gets tough, I'll turn to my friends and family. For some of us, we'll be able to say, no, I'm turning to my own strength. I'm going to work my way out of this. When trouble and hardship comes, we turn to our own strength and abilities. For some of us, it'll be, I'll look to my bank account. You know, I can buy my way out of this problem. Some of us are going, gee, I wish I had that ability to do that. For some of us, we might think, you know, whatever the difficulty I have at the moment, I'm working on getting an education that will change the game. It's going to open doors for me. I'm turning to education as the way out of the thing that's really overwhelming me at the moment. For some of us, it's medicine, and we're turning and we're saying, doctors, save me. And that's not inappropriate, but our strength in the end, we're turning there first. For some of us, we're just hoping one day we'll be able to run away from it all. It's too hard at the moment. My hope is in a cruise liner and a different horizon. Quite seriously. How do I get through the next week, the next month, when things are overwhelming? What's my hope? My hope is I won't be here. I'm going to be kicking back in the sun somewhere else where there aren't any problems. For some of us, we're just trusting in dumb luck. Just hope it'll get better. Heads I win, tails I lose, I don't know. Spin the wheel. And some of us are actually spinning the wheel to get out of our problems as well, and we shouldn't do that. Lastly, some of us are hanging on to religion. We're rubbing our cross like it's a rabbit's foot. We're just thinking, actually, look, God, you owe me. I turned up to church today. Do you know what else I could be doing on Sunday morning? That was a big cost. So for some of us, we are not at the surrender point. We're at the spectator point because actually we're relying on other things. We've got other things to turn back to, to fall back on. This morning, I want us to meet some people who are out of options. They're out of options. They they are people who haven't got anywhere else to turn. And I want you to see how they react. I want you to see how they react. Well, let's meet this guy here. He looks like a nice young guy, doesn't he? I like him. I think he's immediately someone I want to have a chat with. Uh, He's a likable guy. He looks young. He looks in charge of things. He looks on top of the game. Uh, Interestingly enough, He's a synagogue leader. How about that? A young synagogue leader. We're going to meet a synagogue leader in the passage here. Have a look with me at Mark chapter 5. And uh, we're picking it up at verse 21. It says, When Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Uh, Interestingly enough, Jesus had just come back from the Gentile side of the lake where all that demon possession stuff happened. We talked about demons the other week, so I thought we wouldn't make two sermons on demons. But 
Interestingly enough, when Jesus hops out of the boat on the Gentile side, the, the, the non-Jewish side, he's only met by one lonely, demon-possessed man. Here he comes back to the Jewish side, and who greets him? A huge crowd of people greet him and gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue leaders named Jairus came to him, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying, please come and put your hands on her so that she'll be healed and live. So Jesus went with her. A large crowd followed, uh, went with him. So a large crowd followed and pressed around him. All right. This guy has some reputation in the village. He's the, one of the synagogue leaders. I said to you he was out of options. How do we know he's out of options? What's his body posture when he meets Jesus? Do you see what he did? He threw himself, it says, at Jesus' feet. He fell at Jesus' feet. Now, I don't know if you imagine a nice carpet like this. I can assure you it wasn't. It sounds like they're outside, doesn't it? He's throwing himself down onto the dung-covered, dusty ground in front of this wandering teacher. Why? He has no other options, nowhere else to turn, and he pleads. The only thing you can do when you, have, when you have a desire for mercy is plead. You can't demand, can you? I'm out of options. I have no, no, nothing else to do. And so this man of high standing in the village is on the ground in the dust before Jesus, pleading with him. What's so close to his heart? What's well, his daughter, isn't it? And where we might turn to a Panadol, it sounds much worse than that, where we would turn to an ambulance or a medivac, this man has no such thing at his disposal. And all he's done is he has heard of Jesus. How much does he know of Jesus? Well, I'm saying he actually doesn't know very much. He's the two Bibles high guy. He's just heard a little bit about Jesus. He's heard that this guy heals people. And if he's turned up in the boat here, he's run from his house down to the edge of the lake and he's thrown himself on the ground saying, please. He's a guy who doesn't know Jesus personally, as far as we can tell. He's at bin-waving level. He knows a little bit. He's at bin-waving level. But here's the amazing thing. He's a guy who's totally out of options, so he's ready to surrender everything. Jesus, I'm all in. I'm all in. You are my only hope. And so he pleads with Jesus, please, come. Please come. Place your hands on my daughter so that she'll be healed and live. It's interesting, isn't it? This is the bit that I think he knows about Jesus. Jesus, you're a healer, and I've heard somewhere else you put your hands on people. I'm out. That's all my information. You with me? So come, put your hands on her, and she'll be healed and live. That's what he firmly believes. And so prostrate on the ground, that's what he asked for. So uh, the crowd follows, and Jesus went with him. That's pretty great. And then we have this kind of uh, interruption moment. We have an interruption moment in, uh, in verse 25. Have a look. A woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. It's worth saying you couldn't get someone more opposite on the social importance scale, could you? You've got the man who's the leader of the Jewish synagogue. 
And here we have a woman who's been subject to bleeding. She's been deeply unwell for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal, it says in verse 26, under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. So not only is she physically affected, she's financially impoverished. She's also crossed doctors out of the list of people that she can turn to, hasn't she? They've failed her. In fact, she has grown worse under their care. What a tragic situation. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak. I want you to see again, here's a woman who doesn't know very much, does she? She just heard Jesus was in the village. She's a woman who doesn't know him personally. Hey, Jesus. She's a woman who is utterly surrendered because she's got nothing left. She's got nothing left. Now, I wanted to point out, and this is worth saying, um, the Old Testament has lots of things to say about blood. It It says in the Old Testament that the sacrifices work... When we offer a sacrifice, I deserve to die for my sin. When I confess my sin over the sacrifice, the sacrifice, its throat is slit, the blood comes out, and I see, because the life is in the blood, that the payment for sin has in fact been paid. So blood and life and payment, that's all happening there in the Old Testament sacrificial system. But there's another part to it here. It produces uncleanness. And, uh, you know, this is, uh, must have been an incredibly difficult thing for the women in the life of Israel. But it says this in Leviticus 15. When a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days, and anyone who touches her will be unclean till evening. Now, none, no one wants to talk about this in church, by the way. I, I take no joy in doing it. It's part of the sermon, though. Because here's the thing. If this woman had been bleeding for 12 years, what state do you think she was in? from a purity perspective. Utterly unclean. The synagogue leader, in contrast, how clean do you think he was? Well, he's the guy telling people about the Bible. So he would have been at the height of the cleanliness, the spiritual cleanliness pile, right? Here's this woman suffering and unclean. And and the way it flows is, notice, if you touch her, who, who becomes unclean? You do. So imagine what her social life must have looked like. It must have been appalling. The reason I had that woman sitting on her own in the picture before is I reckon she must have been socially ostracised. No one who was a good Jew trying to be clean would have been near her. So here she is suffering physically. She's suffering spiritually in the sense that she feels unclean. She's suffering socially in the sense that no one will be near her. Imagine her state. And with no knowledge at all, she hears that Jesus is in town. She's got no options. What does she do? Well, she pushes through the crowd. What's her passionate desire? All she wants to do, all she wants to do is touch Jesus. And and it says it there. It's incredible. Uh, Verse 27. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought... If I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Check this out. Verse 29. Immediately, 
her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. How extraordinary. She could feel the wellness in her. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. Now, it's, it's worth saying, it must have just been the flow, because you heard the rest of the reading, didn't you? It wasn't that the power going out to heal her emptied the batteries. Are you with that? Because later on he does something with a girl in the room. Do you remember? So it can't be that, oh, my batteries are empty. I need to plug into the wall socket again. It's there's a flow of healing power from him that he's aware of. That he's aware of. So then I think the natural question that, that comes up, first of all, we see Jesus healing as the son of God. He just produces healing. She touches him he, and, uh, and, and, uh, and she's healed. But, but I think that the question that naturally comes up here is, why does Jesus embarrass her? Do, do you get that? So if this magical, incredible healing has happened, she's in the crowd, she touched Jesus' cloak, she was made well, guess what she wanted to do next? Wouldn't she? My miracle has happened. You can go and talk to the girl now. I, I don't need you anymore. I, I'm, I'm done. I've received it. Thank you. So why does Jesus embarrass her? Have a look at verse, uh, verse 31. Uh, oh, sorry, verse 30. Jesus said, who touched my clothes? Now remember the scene. The scene is crowd jostling. People walking in narrow streets. And Jesus calls out and says, who touched my clothes? It's not like he had bodyguards who were kind of keeping everyone back. It would have been everyone everywhere. So Jesus says, who touched my clothes? Why did he do it? Why did Jesus embarrass her? Well, I, I want to suggest my theory. That this is what he says to her. Jesus said to her, daughter, incredibly intimate, isn't it? He could have said, woman. In fact, He uses that to address his mum. Here, he says, daughter. Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. First of all, I think it's profoundly beautiful that Jesus wants her to hear that word of intimacy, daughter. Do you imagine how estranged she must have felt from God? And here's Jesus addressing her personally, daughter. Beautiful. Next, he says, actually, do you know what? Something profoundly great has happened. Your faith, your trust in me has healed you. I want to call that out. Well done. And then this next bit, it sounds like a bit of a, um, I don't know, a Vulcan greeting. Does that mean anything to anyone? None of you? Okay, good. Live long and prosper, you know. Um, Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Go in peace. You are able to be at peace with God now. Be freed from your suffering is actually an incredible pronouncement of blessing on her life, isn't it? You have been unshackled from what has bound you. But here's the really cool bit. I reckon Jesus did all of that for those reasons. But here's the really cool bit. If she'd been healed quietly and privately, how would she have proven to the society in her town that she was well? Are you with me? It's a private affliction, isn't it? Her bleeding. 
but everyone had known about it, and so they stayed away from her because to touch her was to become unclean. Why does Jesus call her out? Who touched me? I did. Trembling with fear is what she said, what said here. Trembling with fear, she comes before Jesus. And he says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Here's what I think Jesus is doing. I think he's not only restoring her health, not only restoring her spiritually, I think he's restoring her socially. Town, you need to know that this daughter of mine is no longer afflicted. She is healed. Your being with her now has no barrier. And I think Jesus is restoring her socially in front of the whole town. Can you see that? Isn't that brilliant? So Jesus, notice one more thing. Which way did the uncleanness flow, incidentally, in the Old Testament? The clean person who touched the unclean person, is that right? What happened here? The unclean person touched Jesus and what happened? Healing and restoration flowed back this way. Uncleanness didn't come onto Jesus. Healing and restoration came onto this woman. Isn't that beautiful? Well, we think it's beautiful. I think the crowd thought it beautiful. There was some person who didn't think it was beautiful. While Jesus was still speaking, it says in verse 35, while Jesus was still speaking, saying all these brilliant things, some people came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue leader. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? What a downer. Here's the crowd seeing this beautiful thing happening in front of them. And now they've just heard. It's beautiful symmetry, actually. Jesus says, daughter, your faith has healed you. And then we have this crashing in with this person coming from the house saying, your daughter has died. Daughter, you're healed. Your daughter has died. Imagine those different experiences. Imagine what it might have felt like to be the father at that point. Jesus, I think it's brilliant you just performed a miracle. I'm a bit upset that you were slow, that we got distracted along the way. Because while my daughter had breath in her, you could have healed her. Now, all of us today, many, many of us here anyway, will know that Jesus has power over life and death, don't we? You'll even do a little quiet nod to me, some of you. Yes, I know that. Here's the thing. No one at this time knew that. So when the last breath has exited the body, everyone assumed that was game over. That was it. That was the end. And so why bother the teacher anymore is a perfectly reasonable thing to say because once she's dead, she's gone. Nothing more is possible. Jesus, overhearing what they said, told him, turns to the dad and says, don't be afraid, just believe. Why do you reckon he had reason to be afraid? <laughs> do we think that that request of Jesus is easy or difficult? I think at one level, we can think it's easy. For some of us, we might think it's really easy, isn't it? Of course you'd trust Jesus. And on top of that, even if you didn't trust Jesus, how many other options have you got at this point? So maybe it's easy. But I think for most of us, it's profoundly difficult, isn't it? Jesus is asking him to trust something that's never been seen before. That this man who has just healed someone who's been bleeding can do something about someone who is dead. Dead. 
And Jesus doesn't put it softly, doesn't he? Buck up, old chap, see how you're doing. Maybe you can wander along with me. He says, don't be afraid. You need to stop fear. You need to replace fear with faith. Don't be afraid, just believe. It's extraordinary, isn't it? Absolutely extraordinary. I think the really cool bit, apart from everything else that happens, is that the the father walked on. He walked on with Jesus. That was an incredible act of bravery on his part, I think. The next scene unfolds with mayhem. And uh, Middle Eastern mourning, not restrained like our sort of funerals. Okay? Dust in the air, torn clothing, beating of chests, loud wailing. Let's have a look in verse 37. Interestingly enough, I think this is extraordinary. Have a look at verse 37. He did not let anyone follow him except Peter, James and John, the brother of James. See, here's the thing. Jesus dumps the spectators. Do you notice that? He dumps the spectators. He actually says, you're not going to get to see this. This isn't for you. Everyone who's here for a sticky beak, guess what? Stop. I'm taking my three inner guys. I'm taking dad and we're going for a walk. The rest of you, stop here. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw a commotion with people wailing, uh, crying and wailing loudly. There he went, he went in and said to them, why all this commotion and wailing? The child is not dead but asleep. But they laughed at him. After he put them all out, he took the child's father and mother and the disciples who were with him and went in where the child was. So Jesus has dumped the spectators and he's turned away the mourners. And he has said, the child is not dead but sleeping. So for some of us, we think, okay, so she's just in a coma or something. That's not impossible, except for the fact that everyone else understood what? She was dead. It's so funny, retrospectively, we think no one will have ever met a coma before, don't we? Comas are a 21st century invention, is that right? Do you think people in Jesus' time might have seen one before? I think that instead of, instead of us cynically thinking it was a coma, I think we should trust that they saw death a lot more than we did. Is that a possibility? Better believe it. And so they had decided on good evidence that she was dead. Jesus walks in and says, she's not dead, she's asleep. What can he mean? Something has happened to her from which I have power that you haven't seen before. She may be dead, I'm going to wake her. I'm going to wake her. It's a beautiful scene, isn't it? They put everyone out. They go up into the room and here's the magic spell that Jesus does. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kuum, which means, little girl, I say to you, get up. He took her hand and he said, little girl, get up. There's no magic there. There is incredible power. There's life speaking to death. He's calling back the dead by addressing her. Interestingly enough, how much response do you think a dead body can have to a command? None. Jesus gives the ability to hear the command and the life to respond. Isn't that awesome? It's actually a picture of our salvation. We're spiritually dead. Jesus makes the call and gives us the ability to respond. That's salvation by grace. Extraordinary. 
Jesus raises her from the dead. Did it take a little while? Have a look at verse 42. Immediately, the girl stood up and began to walk around. She was 12 years old. Great little piece of detail. She was 12 years old. How long had the woman been bleeding for? 12 years old. What do I do with that? Pull my hair out, trying to find something significant. Got no idea. Just sounds like eyewitness detail, doesn't it? At this, they were completely astonished. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. That's my favorite bit. She was so well, her appetite was back. Do do you get that? Oh, by the way, the the dead, when they wake up, generally they have a bit of a hunger. So if you could feed her, that'd be great. It's amazing, isn't it? Complete restoration is what's happened. And then he says to the parents something totally believable. Have a look at verse 43. He gave strict orders not to let anyone know about this and told them to give her something to eat. Well, we've talked before about this secret. Jesus is the son of God, but you need to lock it up with a key and keep it secret. How likely do you think is it that you could keep a secret of the fact that you raised from the dead the little girl? I I don't know what Jesus is doing here, honestly. Downstairs are a group of miffed mourners, aren't there? Who got turfed out of the house. And mum and dad say, oh, look, that pesky teacher's gone now. You can come back in and resume mourning. Oh, actually, don't mourn. Why is that? She's alive. Okay. How did that happen again? Oh, we've let the cat out of the bag, you know, like... Anyway, uh, Jesus says, keep this a secret. And uh, we'll watch Jesus continue to try and keep his identity a secret until he wants to reveal it later. Well, I started off talking about us. You've seen a story about two people who are out of options. I want to talk about us. Where are we and, and where are we up to with Jesus? I want three things for you to consider today. Jesus said to the woman, who touched me? And I think he created a social scene that would have been really awkward and we're surprised by. Jesus said, who touched me? What I want you to see today is your religion can't be transactional and impersonal. Let me explain that. What she wanted to do was she wanted to come anonymously to Jesus, touch him, be healed and hide away. Jesus called her out, gave her a name of beautiful blessing and intimacy and said, I want to relate with you. You can't have a hit-and-run relationship with Jesus. He wants to know you. He's not a dispenser, an ATM of God's blessings. The God who is there is seeking relationship. Come to him to be known. Don't just come to receive. Secondly, the woman thought to herself, if I can just touch his clothes, I'll be well. How much did she know about Jesus? How much faith did she have? Enough. Here's the thing. Some of us will be thinking, one day I'll trust Jesus. One day I'll get all in with this God gig once I've got it sorted out. I'll get myself together enough and then I'll offer myself to Jesus. How much did she have together when she went to Jesus? Almost nothing. What I want to challenge you is bring what you have to Jesus who rewards the faith that you have. Bring what you have to Jesus who rewards the faith that you have. It would be much better for you to bring the tiny coin that you have than to try and save up $1,000 and never come. Here's the other thing I've learned about faith. It grows in small steps. Has anyone found this? If you want to move mountains, you don't start with a mountain, in my humble opinion. 
Start with small things. Trust Jesus for something and let it grow. And as your faith in him grows, you'll actually have more faith to ask for more. My third point is this. Jesus talked to the guys in the boat after he healed the storm and he said to them, why do you still lack faith? I want to think about this. With the faith that you have and what you know about Jesus, what are you asking for? So have you got a handful of dollar bills? Have you got tiny coins? What faith do you have? Have you got a stack of Bibles or a tiny little stack? What do you know? What are you doing with what faith you have and what you know? What are you doing with it? What are you asking Jesus for? Is it a hit and run on the heavenly ATM for the daily troubles I have? Or are you seeking relationship with the living God? I'm talking about a living faith. A faith that for me has meant I started with, I don't know, an emergency on the boat. We were sailing one day and a knot was locked up and the, the, the sea's going up and down. I'm sailing with my family. And I've been sent up to the front of the boat and I'm supposed to unlock this thing that's got all jammed up. And I'm there as a, I don't know, 10-year-old boy praying, God, please let this not come undone in my hands because I've got nothing. Came undone talking about being a 15-year-old boy and figuring out I didn't want to go to hell and that Jesus was the one I needed to trust and putting my faith in him. I'm talking about being a 26-year-old desperately wanting to have kids and praying that God would have mercy on us. I'm talking about standing here in Oran Park with my wife and looking around at empty paddocks and going, one day this will be a church. I'm talking about standing here with you today and praying that this building would be filled up with people who now, right now, don't know Jesus. Church, I want us to have a real and living faith, a faith that believes God for more than we can see now but is built on what we already know. How do we apply today's sermon? I I don't know. We're, We're at a really important juncture in our church's life. And I don't want to do it devoid of prayer. I don't want it just to be more organisation. I don't want it just to be more teams. I don't want it just to be more work, more money. Who are we turning to there? Do you remember those circle of things? That's where we're trusting, aren't we? And look, please praise God for medicine. Save your money. Get educated. Do those things, but don't make them the centre. What I want to say, church, is next Saturday, I'm going to open the church up. I'm going to open it up from 7 o'clock in the morning. We'll try and do some brekkie at the start. I'm going to open it up till the middle of the day. I don't know what we're going to ask God for, but what we're going to do is say, God, help us. Our dependence isn't on ourselves. We want to cast ourselves before you. And so church, I don't know whether you can make next Saturday. Some of you will be interstate. Some of you will be traveling. Some of you will have kids stuff, whatever. All I want to say to you is, church, I want to lead you in a way that puts us in dependence on God at this point. I want us to work our tails off. I want us to figure a whole bunch of stuff out. But if we don't do that by casting ourselves in surrender before our God, by becoming undignified before him, by falling on the ground and saying, God, we need your help, then our hope is firmly in something else, is it not? So can I ask you to be inconvenienced on next Saturday at some point?
I'm not saying how long for. I'm not going to direct and guide you in all sorts of different ways. It's not going to be really fixed. I just want to open our church up. And I want us to spend some time saying, God, it's your church. We need you. We surrender. Build our faith. Build your church. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this woman who was healed. I thank you for this little girl who was raised from the dead. I pray that you would build our faith, not just so that we'd know about you, but so that we would know you. Father, build us in intimacy, build us in trust, build us in dependence on you, and build your church, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.